Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Uh, this week, we're ending our series looking at First and Second Sam. Uh, excuse me, First and Second Samuel's, and we're closing out. Uh, this series called The Crown, uh, looking at God's plan for governing the people of Israel, also looking at uh, life of Samuel, life of the first two kings of Israel, Saul and of David. Uh, so I wanted to look at why these books in this entire series are so important and so relevant, because a lot of people look at the historical things in the Bible or the Old Testament as a whole and say, this doesn't apply to us, when in actuality, actuality, when it really does. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, when it really does. So um, if you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23, which is where we're going to be in a few minutes, uh, but I'm going to start by doing kind of like going through some uh, a summary uh, of what we talked about so far. So we started, uh, when we started looking at uh, the book of 1 Samuel, it started with the life of Samuel, um, who was kind of like a priest. kind of like a a prophet, kind of like a king, kind of like a judge, right? And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your seat somewhere around you, uh, who God raised up to lead the people of Israel. This is after the time of the judges. Uh, And he had him kind of over Israel from a uh, judge, meaning, hey, there's civil disputes. Here's how we rectify those in a godly way, how we live together. A king, here's how we govern and interact with other people, but also as a kind of like a prophet, thus saith the Lord. This is what God's word says. This is what God says to us, right? Uh, But then the people said, hey, we want a king. And God told Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king. Because the people said, we want a king like everybody else around us. They have a king. They have a king. They have a king. They have a king. And if you have kids and they were like, he gets to stay up late. She gets to stay up late. He has an iPad. She has an I want one too. That's exactly what they were doing to God. And God said, okay, okay. He told Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're literally rejecting me. They don't want to do things my way. They want to do things in the way everyone else does. Uh, So then God allowed, okay, you guys asked for a king. We're going to give you a king. Uh, Saul was the first king who who God raised up. Saul, who was um, great from a kingly perspective, good-looking, tall, great in stature, all that kind of stuff, initially humble, but then he kind of like let the position get to his head and started, instead of doing things God's way, he wanted to do things his way in a way that gave him glory. And so God literally told him, you know, you're fired. And at the point God told him you're fired, God said, this is verbatim, um, I have found a man after my own heart who I have chosen as king. Now, when God told that to Saul, he was speaking of David. David was if you do the math, somewhere between negative two to like two years old. Some say he might have been like five years old, but he wasn't a man. Uh, When I do the math, I come out with he wasn't even born yet. He wasn't even in the womb, but God knew who he wanted, so God had planned on David. Now, Saul stayed king for 40 years. David rose up, fought Goliath, came and lived in Saul's household. Saul was like a surrogate father to him. Uh, But then Saul saw him as a threat to the throne. So Saul chased him down for years. So he spent most of his uh, teenage to adult-ish life 
on the run. But then he finally becomes king, and he makes some good decisions, and he makes some bad decisions. So God, hey, God says, yeah, I'm going to let you stay king, because here's the difference. Saul, I want to do things my way, not your way, God. I made bad decisions, but I still want to do them my way. David, I want to do things your way, God. I messed this up. I'm never going to do that again. Whatever you say goes. I messed this up. I'm never going to do that again. Whatever you say goes. So he made a lot of bad decisions, but he loved God. And he wanted to do things the way that was God-honoring. And if you look at, you know, as we've been looking at his life, he made a lot of mistakes, but never really made the same mistake twice. So God allowed him, hey, you're, you're not perfect, but your heart is all about loving me. And God was like, yeah, I'm going to let you stay king. And then uh, because of some of his bad choices, uh, him and Bathsheba, God said, hey, there's going to be some turmoil, tribulation, strife in your household. And his children were like a mess, right? I mean, uh, sexual assault on one another, killing one another until Absalom finally comes after him and David's on the run and he leaves and he takes his whole household with him. But then eventually, uh, where we're going to pick it up today is David reluctantly defeats Absalom. I mean, this this is his son and although his son is coming after him with an army for his life, David doesn't want to hurt his son. And I have this conversation with a lot of people, and they're like, hey, why is there so much evil in the world? You know, whenever we hear of a shooting or we hear of, you know, children getting hurt or whatever, we think, how does God allow this? And the reality is God allows it because humans do it. And in order to stop it, God would have to wipe out all the humans. That's us. We're the cause of the suffering in the world. And just like David, God doesn't want to hurt his children. I mean, if, if, if my son were out there doing bad things, I wouldn't want to be the one to turn the key and lock him up in prison. But I wouldn't want to see him do those bad things either. So you can imagine the turmoil in God's heart because he created humanity. He loves humanity. He looks at the evil things that humanity does, and he weeps for humanity. So he says, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to die in the place of humanity. Then I'll send my spirit that could dwell inside of humanity. So humanity has the ability to choose not to do all of these weird and awful and bad things. So David, you know, he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt my son. He tells the army, hey, defeat the, his army. He says, defeat them, but if you can, spare my son Absalom. And it's war, so they don't. And he's defeated. The army feels deflated because David is mourning his son instead of celebrating the army's victory. But then eventually, David starts coming home. And when he comes home, David says, there's some justice that I kind of need to dole out. Right? Because when David was leaving, there was this guy, I think we talked about this last week, named Shimei, or Shimmy, depending on how you pronounce it. And as David was leaving on the run from Absalom, uh, he was standing there throwing rocks at him, cursing him out because he was from the family of Saul. And he was like, you don't deserve the throne. You're not worthy. Blankety, blank, 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 blank. Right? And, and David's army is like, why don't we just take this guy out? He's got rocks. <laughs> You know, we're like the special forces. Let's just take this guy out. David's like, no. 
Because we don't know if that's God telling him to do that. We have no place to judge him, even though he's doing wrong. We're just going to let him go. But when David comes back, now he's king. He's coming back as king. And Shimei approaches and says, hey, look, I'm sorry. You know, I, 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 I was wrong. I, I shouldn't have done that. And David makes the decision, hey, I'm, I'm going to let you live. Because technically, you know, traitor, assault on the king, that's life or death. You know, in that case, it was death. David says, I'm going to let you live. But it never set right with David. So on his deathbed, when he's talking to Solomon, who's taken over the throne, he says, you need to deal with Shimei. Because that wasn't justice. It wasn't right for what he did. And Solomon says, hey, you know what, Shimei, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm not going to, like, issue a death sentence for you. But here, I don't trust you. Here's the truth. I don't trust you. I mean, your whole reason for doing that was because you wanted my father off the throne, so you probably want me off the throne. I don't trust you, so here's what I'm going to do. You are confined to the nation of Israel. And Solomon's thinking was, if you leave, you might be leaving to amass people to come and make a run for the throne. So you're confined to the nation of Israel. You're not in prison. You're not on house arrest. You just can't leave the country. Shimei leaves the country. And David said, I mean, Solomon says, okay, you're, you're done. I tried to, this is justice. You transgressed the law that I gave you. This is justice. And he has them put to death. And then there's Mephibosheth, because Mephibosheth was a person who David rightly should have looked at as an enemy, because he was a descendant of Saul. He was the grandson of Saul. He was Jonathan's son. But David said, I'm going to bring you into my house, and you're going to be part of my family. And when David was on the run and leaving from Absalom, Mephibosheth uh, was sitting at home and he said, hey, to his steward, because he was lame, he said, hey, bring the car around, a guy named Ziba, and we're going to go, because David considers me family, I need to be there for him. And Ziba said, okay, I'll bring the car around. Ziba brought the car around and then left without him. And went and said, hey, David, Mephibosheth, he wants you off the throne. He's thinking maybe he can get on the throne. So David says, okay, well, Based on what you're telling me, everything that I gave to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba's like, yes, this is awesome. But now when he comes back, Ziba wasn't there. Mephibosheth was there. David's like, what are you doing here? Where were you when I was on the run? I thought we were like family. I, I opened my home to you, not just opened my home, but allowed you to eat at my table with my family. We're family. Where were you? And I don't know about you, but there have been times when you go through something and you're like, Where, where's all the people that say they're my friends? Where's all the people that said they'd be there for me? Where are all the people that said they were my family? And I, I've shared this before in the past uh, when I was consulting, no, this is before I was consulting with the government, when I was working for a tech company, and after I laid off hundreds of people, I was like one of the last to go, I got laid off. And it was hard going from six figures down to three something a week, every other week, for unemployment. I don't even want to say hard. It was, it was impossible. And my first thought was, wow, there's, there's no way I'm going to make it through this. And I was like, I hopefully, you know, I got family that will show up. 
and will support me and say, how can we be there for you? And it was my church family that showed up. I was like, we're going to be there for you. How can we support you? Even, I, I don't have her permission to share her name, but uh, one of uh, the girls who I was friends with, her mom, who I kind of only knew a little bit, she was writing checks, sending them to the church for Floyd, for Floyd, for Floyd. Because she, she knew how difficult it was. And I, I mean, I knew her a little bit, know her a lot better now, but knew her uh, only a little bit. And sometimes it's, it's, it's hard, because when you're going through something, um, you're not only trying to navigate what you're going through, you want support. You need support. And David was like, where were you? And Mephibosheth was like, hey, here's the truth. I wanted to be there for you. I'm lame. I couldn't just run out. I was dependent upon Ziba, and Ziba took advantage of the situation to get all that stuff. And so then David says, hey, based on what I know, I'm going to restore everything that I gave to Ziba back to you. You do with Ziba what you want. Because David was like, hey, there needs to be uh, some justice. And then there's this issue that came up with this group of people um, called the Gibeonites. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Uh, it takes a little bit back to Joshua. Uh, just bear with me for a second. Uh, in chapter 21, so you stay in chapter uh, 23. We're going to go there in a minute. Chapter 21 says, during the reign of David, this is after he's back as king, there was a famine for three successive years. No food anywhere. All the stores were empty. You know how like when they say it's going to snow? and you can't get milk or bread, all you can find are socks. Uh, that's all that was left. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, the Gibeonites, again, a little history, bear with me. When, when Joshua, you guys remember the story of Joshua and Jericho, and the wall's coming down, and they march around, and there's the song they touch in school, Joshua something, 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 Jericho. That's all I remember. Joshua, blank, 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 Jericho. Anyway, uh, Joshua, Jericho fell. Joshua was invading the land because it was God's land. And there was a rule that God had put in place. He said all these people, who are, a lot of them were murderous. Uh, they were uh, you know, killing babies, sacrificing babies, doing all kind of weird things. People look and say that God was evil. God wasn't evil. God was cleaning house of evil people. right? Uh, but God said, hey, don't make a treaty with any of them because they're going to infiltrate you and you'll start thinking like them. But if it's someone from outside of the land who doesn't act like them, you can make a treaty with them. So what the Gibeonites did is they heard how Joshua was like infiltrating the land and they said, we've got to find a way to make a treaty. So they said, we're going to pretend like we're from outside of the land, another nation, even though they were from like a couple of days away. Kind of like, people said, we're going to pretend like we're from Ohio or Kansas, even though we live up in Erie. Does that bring it more into scope? Okay, that's what they said. And they did it because they had heard of Joshua's God, and they feared him. Remember in Jericho how uh, the spies, the first place they went was to the house of Rahab, the the Rahab, I don't, children in the room, the Rahab. I don't know why that was their first stop, but it was. They went to Rahab's house. And Rahab told the spies, everyone in the land is in fear of your God. Because they heard about what God had did 40 years ago in drying up the Red Sea. So the Gibeonites, they were in fear. 
a respectful fear, though. Because they weren't like, how do we defeat them? They were like, how do we become a part of them? And so they told Joshua, hey, uh, we just came from like a couple of weeks of travel. They had on old clothes. They had a, like dried bread and stale wine and all that kind of stuff. And they said, we want to make a treaty with you because we heard about your God. And Joshua said, okay. But then Joshua find out they weren't from weeks away. They were from three days away, or in our case, two hours away up in Erie. And Joshua said, why did you lie? And they said, because we heard about your God. We heard what your God is capable of. And we don't know if we want to worship your God, but we know your God is real and what he's able to do. So Joshua said, I'm not going to hold that up. You lied to me. God said, you are going to hold it up because you went out representing me and said you would do a treaty with them. And three days later, when they got home, somebody invaded their city. And Joshua, although initially was probably like, oh, good, I don't have to deal with them anymore. But God was like, guess what? Those are my people now, just like you're my people. So Joshua traveled through the night, three days, I think, nonstop. He didn't just send a part of the army. He took the whole army, and he defended them because they were his people now. And so God said, hey, those people, they may not look like you. They may not think like you. They may be different culturally than you. They may even have believed differently than you. But right now they're saying, we want to know God just like you. And God said, they're my people. Go defend them. But then what we just read is where Saul, for whatever reason, doesn't tell us anywhere else in Scripture, Saul killed off a bunch of them. Despite the treaty, despite that God looked at them as his people. And the response from God was, hey, uh, there's, there's going to be a famine in the land. Nobody eats until this gets made right. And so then David calls in the Gibeonites and he says, hey, look, God has told me uh, that this famine is because of the wrong done to you by Saul. And they said, yeah, he killed off a bunch of our people. And they said, well, how can we make this right? David said, I've got to, you know, God has told me I've got to make this right with you. There needs to be some justice. And they said, just as our people were killed, then you need to, and this, this is where it gets weird, but you need to, allow the descendants of Saul to be killed. The ones who wrongly killed us, they need to die as well. And David is reluctant, but he says, okay. That's, it's harsh, but it's justice. Here's what David does, though, because the one who was first in line, who should have been killed, the one who was probably the most likely heir to the throne under Saul's house, was Mephibosheth, because he was the grandson of Jonathan. He was like the oldest. Jonathan was dead. Uh, Saul was dead. He was like the oldest next person who should have been in line. He should have been the first person that David handed over, but David didn't because he said, he's no longer from the house of Saul. He's from my house. He's one of my people. And it's not justice to hand him over or for him to pay the penalty for those wrongs. So he handed over uh, a bunch of the other people, a bunch of the other uh, 
descendants of Saul, and uh, I forget who they were. Some of them were like nieces, and not nieces, sorry, nephews and, and cousins and all those people. He handed them over and allowed them to pay the penalty. And it's, it's the same thing that God does because uh, just like God protected, hey, Gibeonites, Joshua, go protect them because they are now in right standing with me just like you are. Just like David from Mephibosheth, he protected him because he's now a part of his family. That's the same thing that God does to us. And there's going to be a time when God says, hey, justice, the wages for sin those are going to have to be paid. And the penalty is death and eternal separation from God. But God's going to look at all the people who accepted Jesus as their Savior and say, well, these aren't the sinners. These are my family. These are the ones that are protected. These are the ones that said, yeah, I want to know this God. And he's going to say, hey, you guys, you're under the household of God, just like Mephibosheth was saved under the household of David. But everyone else is going to say, yeah, there needs to be justice. And some people are going to say, this isn't fair. Why do I have to pay I mean, with my life, but this person doesn't have to pay with their life? And God's going to say, you're right. They did pay, but it wasn't with their life. It was with the life of my son. He died in their place. He also died in your place, but you rejected it. And now you have to pay the penalty because God demands justice. Now, very last chapter of um, 2 Samuel is about another of David's failures, right? A sin that he commits. Uh, in chapter 24, he starts counting his men, basically measuring um, all of his status as of his own rather than as of God's. And when he does that, it costs not just him, but the nation a healthy penalty, right? Because whenever our leaders mess up, we're all impacted. But I, I, it ends with him making that right and God lifting the plague that he put on the people and having mercy on it. But I don't want to end this series with the last sin of David I want to end it with the last words of David. Uh, so if you have a Bible open, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 233. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, this is what it says. And, and some of your Bibles may have a heading, the last words of David. Now we know that David has other conversations with Solomon. Uh, when you look in 1 Kings um, as Solomon is becoming king. So this is kind of taken out of time, so to speak, chronologically. But the authors put it here so that we would understand the heart of David as a leader, because that's, that's really what a lot of this emphasis has been about. And verse 1, it says, These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. And this oracle, that word oracle, it's not just a prayer, it's not just a song. It's, it's usually used for an important message delivered by God. Not necessarily a prophecy, but an important uh, message. 
And he says, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, and that righteousness is God's righteousness, not our own, not what we think is best. When he rules in fear of God, and it isn't fear like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, he's going to smite me, but a healthy, respectful awe of God's sovereignty and capability. He says, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, that person, that man, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. He's saying if there's a governmental leader, a king, for our case, a governmental leader, who's leading in a God-honoring way, it's like a fresh air, a breath of fresh air, a whole new day, a bright sunny day, not just to that leader, to the people that are being governed. And this is one of the reasons, and I harp on this a lot, so bear with me, this is one of the reasons why, if you read the Declaration of Independence, most people read the you know, first part, and they don't read the grievances. Because they talk about, hey, uh, you know, we have unalienable rights given to us by God, our creator. But then they list point after point after point of rights that were violated by a leader who wasn't leading by God's righteousness. And it wasn't like, you know, you robbed us, although that is in there. It was also, uh, you didn't hear our grievances. You purposefully tried to have some of us killed. You purposefully try to disrupt um, uh, the way of governing and our ability to worship God. And for those reasons, we're done. Because those are the things that God allows us to do. So he says, hey, when a government does that, when a leader does that, it's refreshing to the people. And then he says this, and this is more personal, is not my house right with God. Now, when he says, not my house, uh, it's not necessarily talking about his physical house, but the way in which he ruled. And you can say a lot about David, messed up family, you know, adulterer, blah, 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 but that man loved the Lord. And the people of Israel loved him because of the way he ruled. He says, has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part, Will he not bring to fruition my salvation? Then yes, he will. And grant me my every desire. And it's not every desire, like I want a new car and I want a Tesla, because if that was the case, I'd have a Tesla by now. But it's more of the every desire within doing God's will. This is kind of what Solomon asked for. When so you guys remember Solomon said, hey, God, uh, God said, I'll give you anything you want. Solomon said, help me lead this people. I have no clue what I'm doing. And God said, done. I will give you the ability to do that. He said, but evil men, now he's contrasting it, evil men, men who lead by their own will, who don't follow God's prompting, are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of, or tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They burned up where they lie. And that's basically his language saying that, hey, you lead by God's way, justice prevails. The people flourish. They're happy, they're excited, they're able to go about and live their lives in a God-honoring way. But if you're leading in an evil, selfish way, then you have a nation or a people in chaos. And it doesn't matter, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm registered independent, so I'm not Democrat, Republican. But if you look at our nation, we got a nation in chaos. 
And I'm not saying it's a, it's a Republican, you know, Trump's fault or Congress' fault or whatever. I'm just saying we don't have a lot of leaders who are trying to say, what's God's will for the people? Not necessarily making it into a Christian nation where no one can worship the way they want to, but making it into a nation where the things that we do, it's not justice according to Floyd, justice according to Democrats, justice according to the Republicans, justice according to God, who knows what's right and who knows what's wrong. And I'm going to close with these last couple of verses, because uh, Isaiah talks about this, and he says, and he's talking to the nation of Israel, he says, and when you spread forth your hands in prayer, employing help, I'm going to hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I won't hear. Your hands are full of blood. He's not talking to the leaders. He's talking to the people. And he's not saying the people have gone on a killing spree. They're full of blood because of their sins. Because the people who said, hey, we're the people of God, weren't doing God's will. And today, you can look in every single church, every community, all the people that say, yeah, we're the people of God, but they're not doing God's will. And then Isaiah goes on and he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And people ask, well, what do we need to do to turn things around? Hey, if you're a Christ follower, do what God wants. And I love when God explains what he means and he says, here's what it is. Learn to do right, meaning learn his will and his way, spend some time in his word. Seek justice, not the justice for a political party or for a governmental action, justice according to God's will. It says relieve the oppressed and correct the oppressed, but in the Hebrew, it's one phrase that says lead the oppressed and the oppressor. In other words, if you know people that are oppressed, it's great if you tell them something, it's better if you step in and help them. And if you know people that are being the oppressors, it's great if you tell them stop that. It's better if you connect with them and say, here's how we're supposed to treat people. And he says, defend the fatherless and plead the widow. And I hear people use this verse out of context all the time when they're talking about immigration or something like that. This verse is about not people coming from outside of your country, people next door. The people in your town who are orphans, or maybe they're single-parent kids, the people in your town who are widows trying to make it, or single-parent moms. Those are the people that we're supposed to defend. And not just by posting something on Facebook, but by stepping into their lives and saying, hey, how can I help? How can I be here for you? And an example of that, and, and I told... Uh, Rich and Tina that I was going to do this example of that. Many of you guys know Doris Farber passed away uh, this Saturday. She uh, has been coming here much longer than since I've been here. And some of you may know how long. I have no idea, but way longer than when I come here. I know when I first started, when I first got here, uh, and you guys may remember Brandon, my son, he used to lead worship. Um, every time he would come, for some reason, I don't know why, maybe he had a crush on her. He would stop and spend five minutes with Doris. I have no idea. I mean, he would, he would come in, walk past everyone, and just go sit next to Doris and spend five minutes talking to her every morning. And then he moved away. And then she eventually stopped coming. And when she stopped coming, I would go visit her and her husband, Glenn, at the time uh, when he was alive. I'd go visit them. And one of the first things she would ask is, how's Brandon? Maybe she had a crush on him, too. I don't know. But she would always ask, how's Brandon? How's he doing? 
that time kind of impacted her. Now, she and Glenn, as they got older, weren't able to get around as much. So their neighbors, Rich and Tina, kind of spent a lot of time helping them out and being there for them. And eventually, when Glenn passed away, uh, Doris had it, I guess, by Glenn's will that no funeral, no service. She just had me come out and do a graveside prayer. And Rich and Tina were there as well, because they were like family to them. Not connected by blood, but just people who stepped in and said, how can I be there for you? And then when Glenn passed away, uh, she needed a little bit more help, and they stepped in more and more. They became like family to her. Now, a couple of weeks ago, while Christy and I were on vacation, uh, how many of you guys remember Ann, Ann, Ann Miller? Uh, she was... Uh, works with Tina, and so Tina said, hey, we're going to be gone. Can you kind of step in and, and check on Doris and make sure she's doing okay? And she did. And then one night she, like, you know, spent a couple hours with her, had dinner with her, and when Doris went to bed, Anne made sure the house was locked up, and then she left. And then for some reason that night, Doris went outside and slipped and fell. And so Ann called me the day after I got back from vacation and said, Doris is in the hospital. She fractured her shoulder. And Doris never quite recovered from that fracture. Rich and Tina were still on vacation, so uh, the few times that I visited Doris, I think the very first time, uh, I said, do you remember you know, who I am? Because she was on medication and everything. I was like, do you remember who I am? It's been a couple of weeks since I've been to see you, Pastor Floyd from the church. She's like, yeah, I remembered you. She was agitated and in pain, so I didn't spend much time with her. I went back the next day, spent some time with her and prayed with her. And then the following week when I went back, Rich was there. And I remember I was just peeking in to see if she was awake. And he was sitting in a chair, and she was asleep. And he was just watching her sleep, tears strolling down his face. And I was like, Rich, do you got a minute? And he came out and he told me that somehow the, the, the shoulder strain wasn't that bad but she had just made it up in her mind that she's ready to go home, and she had kind of given up. She had been saying that for at least a year. She's like, why does God still have me here? And I was like, because God's not done with you yet. And over the course of that year, she shared stories speaking into the lives of many people, doctor's appointments, Rich and Tina. And then the following week, uh, they were, she was moved to hospice, and Gary and I went out to, to spend some time with her and spent like two, two and a half hours. And then a couple of days later, she went home to be with the Lord. And in my head, I cannot help but think that that pleased God. That Rich and Tina looked at someone who wasn't their family, said, we're going to accept you as family, and we're going to treat you as family, and that's the fulfillment of what Isaiah was saying, defending the orphans and the widows. doesn't mean yelling about immigration. It means stepping into the lives of people in our community who are hurting and saying, how can I be there for you? Now, I know we've gone long, uh, but I told Rich I was going to do this, and that is to uh, uh, share a graveside prayer, so to speak. And per her wishes, she didn't want a funeral service. Uh, she just wanted to be buried next to Glenn, and she didn't want anything done. 
I said, is it okay if I kind of do this on Sunday? And he said, yeah, yeah. So I want to share this. In the portion of his letter to the Church of Rome, we know it as the Book of Romans, Paul wrote this. He said, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's whom Doris is with now, experiencing his love in a way that our minds cannot begin to grasp. Paul also wrote in his letter uh, in 2 Corinthians that we know that if our earthly dwelling, a tent, should be destroyed, we have a building from God, a dwelling not made with hands, eternal in heaven. And again, that's where Doris is now, experiencing God's eternal grace and mercy and love. And she experienced it here on earth, not just from you, her church family, but from people who stepped into her life and said, I am going to love you like crazy. We have no blood connection. Uh, uh, didn't know you before I moved here. But loved you until you left us. So I'm going to ask you guys to bow your head. God, we lift up Rich and Tina to you and are so grateful that they stepped into the life of Doris and were able to love on her in a way that reflects your love for us. We're so grateful that Doris was able to share with them her knowledge of you, her love for you, and all about the love of Christ. God, we pray for us here in this room that we would be able to love people like that, to step into their lives, to love them like crazy, so that they might experience your love through us. We pray for the people in our communities, those that are hurting, those that have no hope, the fatherless, and the widows. God, we pray that we can step into their lives and love them like crazy so that they might experience your love through us. God, we pray for our nation, that all those who call themselves Christ followers would take the time to go out into their communities and love those who are hurting and defend and love the fatherless and the widows that they might experience your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.